Amen. Amen. The title for the sermon is Getting the Gospel Right. Getting the Gospel Right. Let me pray. Father, uh, we thank you that you have blessed us beyond measure with your word. And we pray that in the coming moments, Lord God, you may quicken that word, your word, to our hearts. Lord God, where there is any hard ground, we pray that you would soften it by the work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, where our minds are distracted, we pray that you would help our minds to grasp on to your truth. And Lord God, speak to us as only you can. Shape and mold your people that your name might be glorified. We give this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, before we get into the scripture itself, I just wanted to share a story that is pertinent. Last week, uh, last weekend, my wife and I went to a party. It was a party that was thrown by two couples from Epiphany. One was celebrating their 30th anniversary. The other was celebrating their 20th anniversary, the Petersons and the Hill Houses. So it was one of those parties. It was more than a party. It was a shindig. Amen. And, and it was one of those times where you dress up nice and you're celebrating the faithfulness of God to our brothers and sisters in, in marriage. Well, we went there together and uh, when we got there, we found out that parking, I wasn't sure what was going on with parking, so I decided, let me just drop my wife off, and I'll go somewhere and look for parking. I did that. I found some parking, realized that I needed to put money in a meter or a credit card or something, didn't have it, so I had to go back uh, to get that from my wife, which I did, went back to the car, and then came back to the party again. When I came back to the party, my wife was talking to someone. So I kind of got behind my wife and, and waited. I thought that she saw me there, but they kept talking. And they were talking for a while. And after a while, my insecurity began to like, I'm here, baby, I'm here, you know? <laughs> and, and she's not recognizing me at all. And so I'm waiting for another moment and she's just like oblivious to me altogether. I know this is no one else's problem but my own insecurity. I know this even as I tell the story, but I'm there and, I, and I'm at a place where I'm, I'm saying, you know what, I'm about to grab this woman. I, I'm just going <laughs> to grab her. She's my wife. I can do that. You know, so I, I'm about to move on that impulse and I look across the room and who do I see? My wife. Can I say hallelujah, thank you, Jesus? Because when I told the, my wife the story and I told her why, you know, I got confused, she said, I would not have understood. I would, no, 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 that won't work. Look, my, the reason for telling that story is this, like there's some things in life you can get wrong and it's okay, right? You go to uh, the market and you're supposed to get honey nut Cheerios, but you get, you know, honey bunches of oats instead. That's okay. You put 10W30 instead of 10W40 oil into your, uh, into your car. That's okay. But grabbing the wrong wife is not okay. <laughs> It, it's not good. 
grabbing the wrong wife doesn't work and getting the gospel wrong doesn't work. As much as that would have been a problem for me and it would have been, no doubt, a problem for me in the coming week, uh, the, the, the reality is when we get the gospel wrong, it's a much bigger problem. It's a much bigger problem. And so I know for some of you, I mean, we have theologians and we have, you know, gospel folks here who know the gospel so well. I mean, you said, why do we have to talk about this? This is like Christianity 101 all over again. I've read it, Pastor Larry. I've read the book. I, I, I've heard the sermons. I've listened to the podcasts. I bought the t-shirts. And for my millennials, like I've got the tats to prove it, right? Uh, all over the place. So it's like, I got this. How come we have to come here to this basic stuff all over again. But uh, by way of application, even before we get into the message, I just want to say this. We have to do it because you get the gospel wrong. And so do I. Uh, and if you think you don't, then what you're saying is, I am more spiritual and closer to Jesus than the apostle Peter was. Because we just read and we'll talk about how the apostle Peter totally botched the gospel. He got it wrong. And when we get the gospel wrong, it has great consequences for us and for those around us. If you don't think you can get it wrong, we need to talk after the sermon today. Because we all get the gospel wrong at times. So Paul writes this letter, probably the first uh, letter that he wrote, which is inscribed into scripture. He writes it to the Galatian churches. It's not just one church, but it's a number of churches. It's in an area of Asia Minor, what would be modern day uh, southwestern Turkey. And there's a number of churches there, Lystra and Derby and others, where Paul and Barnabas had gone some years earlier on their first missionary journey. They were in the church of Antioch, and the Antioch church sent them out on a missionary journey to preach the gospel and to establish churches where the gospel had not yet gone. And so they established these wonderful churches. They brought the gospel to this area, these cities called collectively Galatia. And so God was doing a great work there. But the occasion for writing this letter was that some years later, Paul gets a report that some folks have gone there, some, some probably some Jews from uh, Palestine or Jerusalem had gone there and they saw what was going on in their churches. And they said, wow, Paul preached a pretty good gospel about Jesus. Yes, you need Jesus Christ. But they said, but Paul didn't preach enough gospel. You need more than Jesus. You need to adopt the Jewish law if you're really going to be able to serve God and honor him and not mess things up. And so that is the message that's being brought to these churches. Paul gets wind of it and he writes this letter. At the very beginning of the letter in the first chapter, you see how Paul, Paul views this. This is not some little misstep of the gospel at all. In fact, he says that if I or an angel from heaven, not a demon from hell, but an angel from heaven would preach to you any other gospel than the gospel which I've already preached to you, let him be anathema. The word means eternally condemned. 
In a colloquial way, what he's saying is, if anyone preaches a different gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ that I preach to you, he's saying, let them go to hell. That, that, that's what he's saying. So this is a major issue, and we see this in some of his other letters as well, that confronts the gospel when something is added to Jesus as the way of salvation. He says, it negates the whole gospel. And so Paul is having a major issue here. And so we, he goes through chapter 1 and chapter 2, of this letter, and in those chapters, he's establishing the fact that he is indeed an apostle because those who had come against him are kind of saying, well, Paul, he's all right, but he's led you astray. But Paul is saying, look, I am an apostle appointed by God, and I gave you the pure gospel of Christ. And so at the beginning in, in chapter one, he begins to talk about how he received Christ in the first place. Literally, he says, I didn't hear it from anybody, but Jesus appeared to me and knocked me off my high horse. When I was on the way to Damascus to, to persecute Christians, Jesus Christ came to me personally and preached the gospel to me. He says that's the first grounds of his apostleship. And then in chapter 2, we see at the beginning of chapter 2 that he goes to Jerusalem. He's summoned there by a revelation from God, and he goes before the others who are called as apostles, and he presents before them the gospel that he shares with the Gentiles. And what happens is they say, indeed, you are God's man. You are an apostle to the Gentiles, just as Peter is an apostle to uh, the Jews. And so uh, he establishes uh, himself. And in this last part here that we're looking at today, the last foundation for establishing his apostleship, he's going to say, if I'm not an apostle, then what am I doing confronting Peter face to face? So he confronts him face to face because Peter has gotten the gospel wrong. So the situation that he's writing about in the verses we just read is one where he and Barnabas are back in Antioch. They are uh, with the church at Antioch, and along comes Peter visiting the Antioch church as well. And as they visit, they're having a wonderful time seeing the work of God and how God has saved all types of of different folks out of their sin and has brought them to Jesus Christ. But what happens at Antioch when Peter comes, some other folks come. The, the word here says from James, meaning from Jerusalem, from the mother church, if you will. And so they come and they're beginning to tell uh, the people at Antioch the same thing that's going on now at Galatia. They're saying that there are some things we need to do a little bit differently. I see how the Jews and the Gentiles are eating together. That's not right. You know, Peter, as a Jew, you know that's not right. And so what happens is Peter pulls away from eating together with Gentiles. And then so do some of the other Jewish believers there. And ultimately, Paul says, even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, the one who first took Paul under his wing, uh, even Barnabas is led astray by this hypocrisy. So this is the setting of what's going on here. And Paul is saying, Peter, if anyone knows better, you ought to know better. 
If anyone ought to know better, it should be you. Why? Because in Acts chapter 10, uh, before, as the church is in its very early stages and beginning to grow, the, the, the Jews are just going to other Jewish believers with the gospel. They haven't gotten it from the Old Testament that says God wants to be a light to the Gentiles, to the whole world. They haven't understood that truth yet. And so what, what, what they're doing is just going to Jews in various places, but God wants to save Gentiles as well. And so he sends Peter to the house of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And when he sends him there, he sends him to the roof of the house and he gives him a vision. Y'all remember the vision. Some of you do. He brings down unclean foods, probably pigs and, and shrimps and lobsters and all these other things that were considered unclean by the Jewish law. And, and God says to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And in this vision, Peter says, I've never had anything unclean. I wouldn't do that. But God repeats it several times. And finally, he says, Peter, what I've called clean, let no one call unclean. But that message was not just about food. Now, the food message was good enough. I would have been, I would have been happy right now. It's like permission from God to eat bacon double cheeseburgers all you want. You can go to Lobster Fest and you can eat shrimp scampi. You can just go to town on all that stuff. But the revelation really in, in earnest isn't so much about food. It's about the heart of God. And then when Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius and other Gentiles, they receive Christ and they receive the Holy Spirit. God is saying, I'm no respecter of persons. I want to save whoever I will save. Not based on culture, not based on background, not based on any external thing. It's I want to save a people for myself to be glorified. If anyone should get that, it should be Peter. But here we see Peter hasn't gotten it. And so in verse 14, Paul says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He's saying there, there's a major problem here. By adding these requirements to the gospel, he sees that Peter has actually undermined the gospel itself. And so... We come here and the rest of this chapter, Paul is going to show what exactly is wrong with what Peter's doing. And hopefully you'll also see areas in your own life where God is touching you. First thing, look at verse 15 with me. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So as Paul is confronting the lie and the hypocrisy that Peter and others have lived out. Uh, I want to make three points. And the first one is from this verse. False gospels always breed prideful superiority. False gospels always breed prideful superiority. You see the tone of this verse. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. You, do, do you see the distinction he's making? He doesn't say, we are Jewish sinners by birth, 
But, but the others, they're Gentile sinners. No, he says, we ourselves are Jews. In other words, we have the law, we have the Torah, we have Moses, we have Abraham as our father, we have the prophets, we have all of these advantages, and we are the better people, and they are simply Gentile sinners. You see, that, that air of superiority that's there, Paul knew that well, because until he came to Christ, that's what he gloried in. I call this a setup uh, of supposed superiority. There's this sense of superiority that they have, and Paul got it in spades. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, and ver- starting at verse 5, he says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says, like if he was a superhero, he would be Hebrew man. (laughs) Like, I am that guy. I'm that guy. I'm the Hebrew guy. I've got my stuff in order. I've got it together. That's where he found uh, his, his superiority. The question is, where do you find yours? Where do you find your sense of superiority? And if you look hard enough, you'll find that you do find it somewhere. Sometimes we find it by uh, looking at our sin on a sliding scale. My sin is little. Someone else's sin is big. My sin actually doesn't smell that bad, but someone else's sin smells bad. Right. So we justify ourselves by making little of our own sin. That's one way that we become superior. So how could that happen? Like one man may say, I struggle with lust, but at least I don't do pornography. Another one says, well, you know, I uh, fall in pornography, but at least I'm not a fornicator. Someone says, well, you know, I. I do fornicate every now and again, but at least I'm not an adulterer. I don't do it with any married people. And the adulterer says, well, you know, I may adulterate, but I only adulterate with one person at a time. At least I'm not, <laughs> at least I'm not a multiplex adulterator, right? At least I'm not. Look, we, we can take sin any kind of place. And, and, and we justify ours. Now, this isn't just about sexual sin, but it could be in anywhere, right? It could be about how we, treat, uh, how we treat marginalized people, how we treat people in our families who, if they only knew that's why I do it, because they did this to me, and we justify ourselves. It can not only be in our victory over sin that we take pride, but it can even be in our victimization. It can be in the fact that all these terrible things have happened to me, and so I'm low, which means I'm closer to God. So no matter how low I am, my nose is still high in the air. I find my sense of superiority somewhere. And when you find Christ, you won't find a sense of superiority. You will be humbled and laid bare at the feet of Jesus. Come back to that question. Where is it that you find your superiority? Come back to that at the end of the message as well. Second point from verses 16 to 18. The faithfulness of Jesus 
is your only hope for salvation. That's Gospel 101. That's the center of this book of Galatians. That truth is the center of the New Testament and indeed the center of all of Scripture. That the faithfulness of Jesus Christ is your only hope for salvation. Let's look at verse 16. He says, if my eyes can see it, here we go. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. We'll stop there for now. He starts out by saying, yet we know. So that yet is pointing back to verse 15, right? Where he said, we ourselves are Jews, not Gentile sinners. But he says, yet we know. That's an interesting phrase that Paul uses. He's not saying, yet I have a new revelation for you. Or not, yet look what God told me. But he says, yet we know. This is, he, what, what he's doing here is not giving them something new. He's giving them what is common knowledge among the church of Jesus Christ and among the people of God. He's saying, yet we know this already. See, many times our problem is not that we don't know it, but it's that we are not living in accordance with what God has told us. Yet we know. They knew this. Peter knew that but they weren't living it out. So he says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Not justified. The word justified there means to be declared not guilty. It doesn't mean you didn't do the crime, but it means that when you went before the judge, you were declared righteous. You were declared not guilty. Someone said justified means just as if I'd never sinned. So you stand before God with all your guilt, with all your sin, with all your mess, and God says, I declare you to be righteous and holy and perfect. And that's what we need, but he says, a man is not justified. No person is justified by works of the law. That's a common phrase in Paul. We're not justified by works of the law. Theologians uh, disagree sometimes on exactly what he means there. Some uh, believe that he's just talking about some specific elements of the Jewish law, like circumcision, like Sabbath, like certain holy days or certain types of food to eat. But if you read through the book of Galatians, you can see that he's actually talking about more than that. In Galatians 3 and verse 10, Paul says this, for all who rely on works of the law, that phrase again, he says, are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So he said the curse is on anyone who's put their trust in the law, the whole law, not just the Ten Commandments. Some people say, well, I know the Ten Commandments. I got the Ten Commandments down. I'm doing the Ten Commandments. No, you're not. You are not doing commandment number one very good let alone the rest of the nine. And if you look at the Old Testament law, there's 635 laws. So even if you think you got the first 10 right, there's 625 more that are going to trip you up. He says, if you're looking to the law as the way to justify yourself, you are not just in trouble, but you're under a curse. He's going to later say that 
there is the, the curse has fallen on one. The Old Testament says, cursed is everyone that hangs upon a tree. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ who hung on that tree and became a curse for you and for me in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, we uh, are not justified. We are not uh, declared righteous by God according to works. But he goes on to say in the verse, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that's an interesting phrase because it can be actually translated from the original in Greek to English in different ways. And many of the translations have it just this way, through faith in Jesus Christ. But I think there's reason to see that, that another way it can be translated is this, that we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Grammatically, either one is a possibility. Probably the weight of grammar would lean towards the second. So in other words, it says, it, it could be translated to say that we're not justified by works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Why, why am I bringing out that point? Why is that important? Because what Paul is actually laying out in these verses is, Two different ways, two different means by which we can just be justified. The first means is uh, being justified based on what you do. The second means is being based upon what someone else has done in your place, what Jesus Christ has done. So your, ba your, your justification comes from the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Look, as believers, in, in a little while, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, we celebrate his death on the cross, his burial and his resurrection from the dead. But here's, here's the reality. If Jesus Christ did not live out his life faithfully before the Father, if he had given in to sin or temptation at any point in his life on this earth, the cross would have meant nothing to you or me. If Jesus Christ had failed to be faithful at some point, then he would have died on the cross for his sin. And so we are saved by the work of Christ on the cross because he lived his life faithfully before God, perfectly before the Father never once giving in to sin. And so the objective means by which we are saved is not our faith. Our faith is simply the way we connect to that means. See, the means, the objective reason that we can be saved is because someone got it right. Someone got it perfect. Someone never went off course. Someone withstood all the fiery darts of the enemy. Every temptation, just as we do, and yet without sin, and he walked the line perfectly. That's Jesus Christ. That's the basis of your salvation and of mine. Why would anyone have a problem with that? Well, they do. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, Paul is, is basically uh, uh, giving one of the objections that he has heard so often to this gospel. He says, but if in our endeavor 
to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? See, he uses that word sinners again that he used in verse 15. In verse 15, he said, we're Jews. We ourselves are Jews. We're not the sinners, but there's Gentile sinners. But now he says, if we endeavor to be justified in Christ, what if we found out that we too stink as much as the Gentiles stink? What if our sin is nasty and bad? And if we're going to try to live out this Christian life and we're not going to adhere to the law, we're not going to put the law where it needs to be, he says, we're going we're to go right and left. We're going to be in trouble. Our lives are going to be a mess. And then he says, and so Jesus might be found to be a servant of sin himself. This grace is so amazing that when we receive it, just like he, he is uh, saying in Romans chapter 6 as well, if grace abounds, why not sin? Right? So that's kind of the mindset here. He says Jesus now becomes a servant. The, the word in the Greek there is diakonos. Uh, uh, we, we use it for deacon. We use it for minister. So he's like, is Jesus becoming the demon deacon in the church? Is he becoming the one who just allows people to go into sin and live any kind of way? That's a problem. That's not Christianity, is it? So Paul addresses their concern in verse 18. He says in verse 18, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What is it to destroy or to tear down? When he says... If I rebuild what I tore down, that word tore down means to take uh, a stone after stone from a structure of building, to take the highest stone and throw it down, the next one and throw it down, the next one and throw it down, until what you have is no longer a building or an edifice, but you have rubble, you have nothing left. He says, if I rebuild what I tore down, then I'm a transgressor. Well, what was it that he had torn down? He tore down the works of the law as a means to be justified before God. He tore down the, the, the ability or the thought that somehow I could attain a, a place with God based on my own effort. I tore it down. But he says, if I rebuild that again, I'm a transgressor. I've got some people that are going to help me illustrate that. So just get in your places if that's you today. All right. All right. So... Right over here, these, oh Lord, they got some big dudes too. I didn't, I, I didn't want that. So these guys represent the law as a way of, of being justified before God. And I see the law. And the law is inviting me to come. Come on, invite me, y'all. Invite me, okay. Now, now and the law looks good. The law looks good. The law looks fly. Because the law reveals the, the beauty of God. It reveals the purity of God. And so the law bids me to come and I'm looking for salvation. And I'm coming to the law and then I come into the midst of the law. And as I'm seeing the law, I'm seeing I'm not making it. Take it easy, guys. Take it easy. Take it easy. And, and the law is beating me down and I can't make it and I'm not going to make it. But, but somehow I need some help. And I finally get some help from a Savior who comes and rescues me. He rescues me. He rescues me from the law. 
And I don't worship Pastor Kurt, but I worship (laughs) the Lord Jesus who rescues me from the law. But what the scripture says, that if I rebuild what I had torn down, I become a transgressor. The word transgressor means to go outside of the boundaries that have been set. And so where I come to Christ and he comes between me and the condemnation of the law towards my sin, I make a decision to say, you know what? I need the law to help me get right. And what I do is I become a transgressor. I move Jesus out of the way and I come back to the law as a way to be sanctified and to grow in Christ. That's what Paul is saying in these verses. That's what's going on. He says, if you rebuild what you've already torn down, you're a transgressor. He says, the only place you're going to find life is in Jesus Christ. So that's the third point. That's our last point today. The life of faith connects you to God. It's based on the faithfulness of Christ, but you're connected by your faith. Look at verse 19 and 20. For, though, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is saying here what he said in verse 16 as well, that I'm connected to the finished work of Christ simply by believing in him. And as I connect myself to Christ, that is the way to overcome the devil's schemes. That is the way to overcome our sin issues. That is the way to grow in Christ. But so what's happened is so many times We are trying to do it apart from Christ. We're doing it in our flesh. We're doing it by our willpower. We're doing it by the good morals that we got somewhere. And when you try to overcome sin using all of those things, it is like you're going into nuclear war using a BB gun. You're about to get destroyed. The reality is, The only way that you will ever slay sin in your life is if you are vitally connected to the only one who has ever had the power to slay sin. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. We connect to him by believing. We connect to him by trusting. We connect to him by faith. That is how the law itself was never meant to make you righteous. It was meant to show you what a mess you are. The law shows us just what a mess we are. And the law, by its very nature, was working itself out of a job. Paul says in, in uh, Galatians 3, 24, that the law was our schoolmaster or our teacher to lead us to Christ. By showing us our need for a savior, the law reveals the wonder and the beauty of God and it reveals how how far short we fall of that and our need for Jesus Christ. We connect to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let me finish up with just a few thoughts here in conclusion. First of all, 
What's the problem with not getting the gospel right? What is the problem with that? Four things. Number one, when you don't get the gospel right, you become nose blind to the smell of your own sin and hypersensitive to the sin of others. You become a person that it's not safe for some people to be around, especially if their sin is different from yours. When you know Jesus and when you're walking in him, you begin to realize, I can't look down on anyone. When you get the gospel wrong, you're nose blind to your own sin. Secondly, when you get the gospel wrong, you cling to false saviors, which cuts off fellowship with Christ. You, you look to other things and perhaps other people and other areas to build you up somehow to justify yourself, and then you cut off fellowship with Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean you uh, become a non-Christian when you get it wrong, because we'd all be going back and forth between being a Christian, being saved, unsaved, resaved, saved again, born again, again, again. We'd be doing that all the time if that was the case. But the reality is we do cut off our fellowship with God when we're trusting in false saviors. Thirdly, you get off mission. You get off Christ's mission because you're on a mission to justify yourself. See, what happened in that church in Galatia was a church that was on mission. People were getting saved. People were seeing the beauty and splendor of Christ. But when this other way, this addition to the gospel enters into it, and when it enters into your life, now the church becomes separated. Now the church shows a gospel that's not the true gospel. And your life gets off mission, and now your mission is to justify self somehow or to feel better about me. Christ isn't the center anymore. Fourthly, you forfeit the power of God in your life. When you're not getting the gospel right, you're looking for a source of power that doesn't exist. The only power you're ever going to get to live the Christian life is through connecting to God through Jesus Christ with the inworking of his spirit. Nothing else is going to empower you. So as I close, three questions for application. Can write these down uh, and think about them this week. Number one, where am I feeling superior to anyone else? Or you could put it this way, who is it that I feel superior to? You've got to be honest with yourself. There's probably somewhere where there's a, a name you can write down or a class of people you can write down. And you need to repent of that because that is not... That does not come from a right understanding of the gospel. Secondly, apart from Christ, how am I trying, how am I justifying myself before God apart from Christ? In what ways do I try to appear to be better than I am? In what ways do I want to be accepted apart from Christ? And then lastly, how am I pursuing relationship with Christ as the essence of my life? You see, when, when you get the, these last verses that we looked at, when he says, I died to the law, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. When you understand that reality, then you begin to build your life on connecting with Jesus Christ. And this question is just, how am I doing that? Practically, really, daily, 
weekly, what does my life look like that I'm connecting to Christ for the strength and vitality that only he can give? Let me just read uh, the words to a song as I close. It's a song from my, one of my favorite artists. No, my favorite artist. It's my daughter, Leah. The song is called Untitled Song. And the chorus goes like this. Oh, mess that I am. Can you put me together again? At first, I thought you didn't matter till your grace showed me that I was shattered. Now it's you that I'm running after. So carry me high on the heights, on the wings of the dawn. Lead me all the way to the place where you say I belong because you have the power to cover over all of my wrongs and present me as whole. Only you can make me whole. There's only one place to look. There's only one to believe in. It's Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again today that though we, like Peter, at times have gotten the gospel wrong, that, Lord, your grace is big enough for us. Your love is deep enough for us. You are the great God and Savior that we so need. So, Lord, I pray that you will help each person under the sound of my voice to understand places, perhaps, of where we are missing your gospel. And, Lord, to come back to you in fresh repentance and say, God, you got me. Here I am. And receive the forgiveness and love of God in Christ and grow as we connect ourselves to you by faith. So Lord, be with us as we seek your face in all these things, we pray in Jesus' name.